Hi everyone, welcome to the Shaker Musings podcast with me, Phil Saker. It's the 25th of January 24, it is episode 114 and today we're looking at the power of lies. So uh, welcome to the podcast today, everyone. Um, Just a couple of things before we get going. So firstly, I apologise if I sound a bit bunged up and what have you. Um, As you can probably tell, I've got a cold again. Um, Annoyingly, um, you know, I had one um, uh, back in about November time and I had to skip a week of the podcast and just posted up something on my blog. And I feel a bit annoyed that I've gone down with another one. Uh, I, I don't know about you, where you are. But I do feel like this winter has been one of the worst winters I can remember for health. Um, I don't know whether it's to do with the, you know, the the rain and the damp weather. I mean, where we are, it doesn't usually rain that much here. Um, But, you know, the rain has been awful. Um, You might think it's something to do with giving people an experimental medical intervention, destroying their immunity and then, you know... um, uh, making them fearful and isolated might, might have something to do with it as well um, but I don't know I really don't know I mean I do remember there was a, a really bad winter for illnesses uh, pre-covid so I don't want to just assume everything is down to the the same thing you know the usual suspect as it were um, but nonetheless yeah I, I've I've been struggling this winter I've had this sort of persistent cough and everything so I do apologize for all of that let's hope with the warmer weather with the sun will come you know more more vitamin d um, more kind of um, you know more health so uh, let's hope and pray for that the other thing to mention is just that um, uh, this is a slightly odd thing but if you're listening to the podcast you may have noticed if you're listening particularly on earphones or headphones or something that there is a a little whiny noise going on in the background and it's something which I didn't realise was happening. And it, what it turns out, it's the computer. Now, when I got this computer, I got this a new computer about four years ago when I started doing Understand the Bible uh, videos, you know, my other, my other channel. And um, the fan then was quite noisy. But I had a microphone, a reasonable microphone, which I thought didn't pick up that, that noise. It just picked up my voice. Anyway, last year, we started having... Um, Bible studies at another, you know, someone else's house, and her TV that I was playing the the um, understand the Bible videos on, um, basically, um, I think must amplify um, the noise of a certain frequency, and you could hear this sort of whining noise coming through. And then I I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll I'll just listen to my podcast and everything on headphones, and there we go, you can you can hear it. And the problem is that when you when you hear it, you can't unhear it. You know, you just your ears kind of lock into it. So I do apologise if it's been bothering you for you know for for months, for years, and you've just never said anything. Well done for soldiering on through. It's been bugging me um, since I've noticed it. But um, maybe you never noticed it. In which case, all of this is irrelevant. Um, anyway, I've got a a new fan. It's a, it's the CPU fan. I've got a new one coming. Um, hopefully today and um, that's meant to be quiet it's meant to be you know about as quiet as background noise in a library so I don't know whether that means that every now and then you'll get someone coming around and going shh um, or, or something like that you know so hopefully it will be sorted out anyway that's that's the main message of what I wanted to say and this is probably irrelevant to the majority of you who aren't listening but you're probably all going to be going on now listening oh, oh let me hear that let me hear the fan let me hear the fan you know turn it up loud um Anyway, so those are the main things to to mention. Let me let me uh, bring up the news and the links uh, for this week as usual. Um, so the first thing that I've got there is um, oh, let me come into it. There we go. The first thing I've got there is my website. I've redesigned my website. Um, not that that will really make much of a, a difference to you. Everything is still there, but just let me know if you have any problems. Um, I just wanted to mention that just in case you you ever look at my website and you noticed it was a bit different. Um, Do let me know if there are any problems. Um, I've got, uh, I've written a new blog post as well, which is just called Some Thoughts on Accountability. And something which um, someone mentioned to me, uh, a friend of mine mentioned to me uh, last week is just, you know, I I don't want to be kind of a, you know, in inverted commas, lone ranger. 
you know, I don't want to be one of these people who's just on their own and, you know, with no sort of accountability because we can think, I mean, I'm sure we can all think of some quite high profile examples over the last few years of accountability failures. And that's what I wanted to address in the blog, you know, thinking about uh, accountability from, for, in general, you know, from the Bible, accountability in the church and the secular accountability and as, as it applies to me. So do have a look at that uh, if you haven't seen that already. Um, okay, so let's move on to the main main things. I'm just going to run through this really quickly today. I do apologise, as I said, I'm a bit coldy, so I think it's probably best if I don't talk, uh, you know, all that much. I'll just um, I'll just run through these pretty quickly. But as I always say, do let me know if you have anything uh, helpful. Leave them in the comments on YouTube. Uh, email me through sacredmusingspod at gmail.com or Telegram me. Um, or you can actually leave a comment on my website. All of these uh, podcasts go up as a post on my website. So if you go over to my website, link is down below, then you can leave a comment as well um, on that. So the first thing to mention is an article on the Daily Skeptic, published on the 19th of January, saying that according to the yellow card um, scheme, the uh, adverse event reporting system, there are... Uh, a certain number, uh, 2,500 reported deaths uh, from from the vaccines. Um, now, bearing in mind that, you know, that there are, this is not, you know, saying that that's the exact number. But in fact, this is what they are, they are looking into. They are looking into the yellow card scheme. And they say that the true number could be uh, 10 times higher. And that there are really, you know, problems in the, with the yellow card scheme sort of in general. And these have been known about by the MHRA and um, the other, you know, other bodies uh, for quite some time. Uh, so, yeah, I just thought that was an interesting article looking at the, the problems with the yellow card. And, I mean, it is a, pr- is a problem if you've got this reporting scheme, which is not being followed, isn't it? You know, that, that's the issue. It's, it's not so much that the tools aren't there, even imperfectly, but the tools aren't even being listened to, it seems. Uh, so, so have a look at that article. Um, uh, there's an article on the Brownstone Institute, which I think is republished by, from this chap, Bill Rice's Substack, saying COVID didn't suddenly become deadly in April 2020. And what he is asking, the question that he is asking is why is it that uh, all of a sudden, you know, if COVID was around prior to March 2020 and the lockdowns, why is it that we didn't see high numbers of excess deaths uh, throughout winter 2019 to 2020? And I, I, I think I've said before, I'm pretty sure that I and my family, you know, we all had COVID in December uh, at Christmas 2019, you know, we all went down with a mystery illness. Um, I knew I had a friend who was coughing, you know, all through this, that, you know, January, February um, kind of time in 2020 uh, so with some kind of mystery cough, which just went on and on. Um, and, you know, this is the thing. It's uh, why is it all of a sudden it became deadly in March or March, April, you know, with the with the lockdowns? Was it rather than the actual virus itself? Was it something to do with the response which caused that that spike in mortality? And um, that's what uh, that's what he sort of looks at, just look, looking at it logically. So I thought that was um, you know again helpful to, to think about. I mean, it's all the stuff that we've been thinking about for a while, but it, it just seems like the evidence is beginning to to come in more. You know, as people are thinking about this. Um, Okay, the next thing then is Brendan O'Neill writing on Spiked, uh, an article called The Myth of the Muslim World. Uh, The subtitle, The Israel-Hamas War Has Exposed the Danger of Islamic Identity Politics. And what he's saying in this article is that we in the Western world tend to lump Muslims and Islam all into one basket, as it were. You know, we just lump them all in together. And that has led to this rise of, you know, the um, Muslims who, who are in other countries uh, have, you know, because there isn't a Muslim identity in a sense, you know, that, that, that Pakistani Muslims will have a different set of beliefs to 
Muslims from Bangladesh and, and, and so on and so forth from different countries that it's not uniform. Um, and, you know, you get the, for example, you get the Sunni and Shia um, distinction as just as it is, which is quite a big split. It's certainly not like Christianity, where although you do have different denominations in Christianity, you have the same Bible, you have the same kind of um, everyone has to you know believe in Jesus. And, you know, that the, you've got the Nicene Creed, the Apostles Creed and so on, which are accepted by every kind of orthodox um, denomination. Um, but Islam is, is not uniform. And what he was saying is that, you know, by trying to, you know, the Western media trying to force this pattern on everyone actually makes uh, some Muslims adopt a kind of more extreme approach, you know, because they are being pressed into an identity which is given to them by the, um, you know, the Western media and by, you know, the, the world who, who try to force them into taking more extreme uh, position. And I thought that that was, that was interesting and, and it's certainly very helpful to remember that there isn't such a thing as one Muslim identity and it's very easy to talk about that you know to, to fall into that pattern when we're talking about um, Islam and just you know say that there is one um, but actually there are lots of different communities and we've seen some of that over the last week or so um, so yeah I thought that was a that's a helpful article here we go get that back up um, there's an article also on the Daily Skeptic published uh, published on the 23rd of January which says the scientific peer review isn't working and I will no longer be part of it by a man called Peter Sivan I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right um, but yeah if if you're I think if you've been following the podcast for a while you know I have mentioned once or twice the scientific um, peer review process and the problems in science at the moment and uh, I thought this was a very informative formative article from someone who is in the the know you know he's had to write several peer reviews and and so on you know who's in the know about these things I thought it was a really informative article about that and about you know how um there are real problems with it so yeah do have do have a read if you're you're interested in the whole the problems with the peer review process uh, it does seem like it's more about you know it's not really about actually um, correcting problems and about fixing issues and making sure that the science done is correct but just kind of rubber stamping things which they want to, to rubber stamp you know it's it's more like a you know, yeah waving someone through um, in in certain circumstances um, okay the last three articles that I've got to mention are all about Michaela School and about Catherine Burble Singh I think I mentioned this last week, but the news that Michaela School is got a you know is in the High Court because um, someone Muslim group or, or what have you is taking Michaela to court over a prayer ban. You know they ban prayer in the school, not just Muslim prayer, but you know they ban people from ban the, the pupils from kind of having a um, separate you know prayer prayer time so the muslim peoples can't you know take their prayer mats in and go and play in the uh, pray in the playground that sort of thing and um i've just got a, a bit of extra um there's a few more things on there so uh, on this i should say uh, again on the daily skeptic but they're just reposting something from the uh, daily mail a muslim schoolgirl who's taking her teachers to court after pupils were banned from praying in school playground was suspended last year for threatening to stab a girl so this the 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 young woman who uh, is you know causing the fuss was in um suspended last year for threatening to stab uh, another girl so there we go that's um i think that just goes to show some of the character of you know what 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 who is is bringing this complaint um there was a good interview on unheard with Catherine Burble seeing video interview and um i'll put the link down below this is um she's just talking about it and I, I thought this was helpful you know that she was I think she was really very positive about multiculturalism in a sense in that she was saying you do need to bring people together and you do need to get people together to put aside so don't just leave people in their enclaves and that Freddie Sayers was kind of pushing her on that and saying well do you really believe in multiculturalism you know do you believe actually there needs to be a kind of monoculture that, that you do need to bring people together 
and I thought it was interesting what she said um, about it. And one of the things that she did point out, and I think it's again it's helpful, is you know going back to what Brendan O'Neill said. We often talk about the Muslim community, but the picture is a lot more complicated. You know that there isn't really a Muslim community as a unified block. That there are certainly people who have a louder voice. Um, but you know she she I think thinks that this complaint is being driven by activists from the internet rather than actually you know um, by she said a lot of the parents at the school don't I mean they say it would be nice to have a prayer room but they you know they they like the school anyway as it were so that it is not something which is being driven by parents at the school it's sort of being coming from outside activists uh, and of course the, the government seemed to be funding this via legal aid so you know um, I just leave that there um, uh, the final thing here is an article by Frank Faraday on Spite saying Islamists are wreaking havoc in British school. Uh, secular education is under concerted attack from hardline Muslim activists. And he also talks um, about not just Michaela but Barclay Primary School uh, in um, uh, West London, who, uh, sorry, Leighton, East London, not West London, East, East London, in Leighton, not, actually not far from where I did a church placement. Uh, when I was at college, but yeah, that they forbade children from showing Palestinian flags, and some in the community went absolutely mental about this. And you got activists sort of climbing the the, the walls of the school, the gates, and hanging up Palestinian flags, and and so on and so forth. And um, it was yeah, I mean, they say that you know that the school had to close two days early for Christmas. They say they might have to go into online learning. Or even close completely, and this is meant to be a you know a very good school. Um, it does you know again I sort of go back to to what what I was saying last week, which is that you know yes we mustn't see the Muslim community in inverted commas as one block. There are definitely people in the Muslim community who want to you know cooperate with sort of traditional Western values, who are prepared to integrate, fit in, and so on and so forth. I'm sure that many in the in the in Muslim world would not condone all of this kind of stuff. At the same time, it does seem again, every time that this kind of thing happens, it is the one religion which is doing it. Um, and you know that they do seem to have a real problem with extremism. Um, and there are reasons for that. And uh, you know, I mean, I know we talked a little bit about it on the, the podcast before. But to say it's complicated doesn't mean that you know we can then ignore actually doing anything about it you know we actually have to take action and it seems to me you know that part of the problem is that secularism is just not going to be enough for these people that at the end of the day saying you know we have uh, you know we only have secular values you know that the, they think well our values come from God you know God is the one who blesses our actions our violence our values and, and so on and so forth they, so they're superior and unless we actually have a religious comeback you know we say no you know that we believe in god creator of heaven and earth the the father of jesus christ you know that's where we draw our values from you either take it or leave it um and you know you fit in or you leave i think that that's a a different kind of you know um that would be a different kettle of fish and I feel, I feel that that is what we need in order to overcome this. You know, is actually saying, look, as a, as a country, we, we base our values on Christian values. They come from, from God, from the Bible. And that is what we are sticking with. You know, you either take it or leave it. And I, I think that may be the only thing which is actually able to really bring people together in the end. You know, that um, those who, who want to, can't accept that, will, will need to leave, really. Um, and... Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. Anyway, let me know what you think in the comments below. Uh, do get in touch by email, shapegoodmusingspod at gmail.com, telegram me, and uh, yeah, let's move on to think about the main topic. And so today on the podcast, we are thinking about the power of lies. Now, I know that truth and lies are something which I've talked a lot about on the podcast over the past few years, but something which... I feel that over the last you know week or so I've been thinking more about is how lies are not just 
you know, words, they're not just a thing, um, but a bad thing, but a, a thing, but that there's a, a deeper power behind lies than I think I'd, I'd actually um, realised and, you know, um, given, given credit to. Uh, so let let me go through what I uh, what I've got here. Uh, you know that expression, which you may have learnt as a child. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Now, um, I remember my uh, my mum and dad teaching me that. Um, you know, when I was at school, and perhaps your parents did as well. But the thing is, it's not really true, is it? That words can hurt, and and actually, we know that words can maybe hurt more than sticks and stones and um, I think that words do have a power a power which is is beyond what we often give them credit for now I thinking about lying I used to think that lying was a bad thing for well I think for two reasons firstly you know because it was immoral you know it's um, uh, there's the Ten Commandments about not bearing false witness. You know, we shouldn't deceive people. So it was, yeah, it was an immoral thing to do. And also, lying could get you into hot water. You know that expression about, oh, what a tangled web we weave, and, and so on. So lying was something that we shouldn't do because we could get into trouble as well. So it was it was immoral. It, was, it could get you into trouble. Now, I think those reasons alone are good reasons not to lie those reasons alone should keep us in the truth but is there more to it is there something deeper um i think lies actually have a a, a power which is beyond that of you know um just simply a, a truth or falsehood just a just a phrase just a, just a set of words i think lies can actually enslave us something uh, you may remember a few months ago I mentioned Tucker Carlson he did a or oh, what was it I can't remember I think he it was one of his um things on he did he, he talked about covid and he talked about um in the context of everything that was happening in the world he said you know every time someone lied basically they became weaker and that every time you lie it weakens you but every time you tell the truth it strengthens you so that people who tell the truth are you know, strong people, kind of in terms of character, but people who lie are weak people. Um, that's the gist of, of what I took from what he said. Um, I think it was it was actually just before he got fired, I seem to remember, it was the speech that he gave where he, he talked about that. Now, I think what he said has been borne out by our experience over the last few months, thinking about, you know, what happened during covid I personally believe that people who went along with everything, even people who didn't necessarily believe in it all, but the people who went along with it have changed. And I know this, I mean, I don't want to go into details, obviously, but there are people I used to know who were people I thought were, you know, good, godly people. And they went along with all of the the theatre of COVID, the masks, the, the social distancing, the testing. I mean, they didn't just go along with it, but some of them are real true believers. And I think it's actually made a difference to them. Looking at them now, many of them, the people who I think have remained unscathed by what happened are the people who've questioned, you know, the people who have... Um, you know, stood up and said, no, I don't think this is right. Or you've not gone along with everything, not just accepted everything, but questioned and thought and you know, not perhaps not, not bought into it all. And I think those people have actually grown, grown as people, grown stronger or at least not weakened. But I think that the people who went along with it all, who bought into it all, have weakened as people. And I think you can see that. Maybe you've, you've experienced this too. You can look around at your friend's family people in your church perhaps you know those who went along with everything who are now weaker because because of it and it does seem to me that we are living now in days where you know post covid where i think people can't say what they really think or feel 
Uh, so, for example, I think that a lot of men, and in fact women as well, I mean, well, everyone, you know, I think they have to pretend that they they are not, you know, um, they don't feel what they feel and so on. They have to pretend, especially in a post-hashtag-me-too kind of a world. To give you an example of this, a week or two ago, I was watching a trigonometry interview with uh, Stella O'Malley, who's a, a psychologist but specialising in children and, and adolescents in particular. And she just mentioned, I can't remember all the context, but basically, uh, I think one of her children knew a 15-year-old um, who, you know, there was a boy, 15-year-old boy, who was sleeping in the same bed with a 15-year-old girl. Uh, and she said, oh, that's not okay. You know, and they said, oh, don't worry, he's not a creep. As in, you know, he's not creepy, he's not going to do anything. And, you know, the point that she made, and the point which I think is a good one, is that when did it become creepy for 15-year-old boys to have normal urges, which, you know, boys have had since the dawn of time, I think, um, quite honestly. You know, when did it become... Uh, creepy in fact for boys and in fact girls to have urges for for one another but that's the world that we're living in we have to pretend that you know the way that we feel is not actually the way uh, that we feel um politically people are self-censoring i didn't mention it earlier but um, there was an article i think on the daily skeptic the other day which talked about this how People were were um, self-censoring now their political opinions. Um, people weren't talking, didn't have the freedom to talk about, you know, the the things which, especially about politics, but other things too. You know, so many things now in society. We just there are topics we have to avoid. You know, if you want to get on with other people, we have to avoid certain topics. So people are self-censoring. They're not speaking the truth as they see it to others. They are just towing a political line for the sake of an easy life. Um, I thought it's ironic, isn't it? In a, in a world where being yourself is prized, I know we've looked at this several times, but you know, like Carl Truman, the rise and triumph of the modern self, where self-expression is seen as the highest value, then actually we now live in a society where you can't express yourself. You can't express yourself emotionally. You can't express yourself uh you know, in terms of your thoughts, you know, you have to keep it all buttoned up, all hidden, because we're not allowed to to say what we really feel and what what we really think to one another. Now, uh, it's really ironic how that's happened. So, I thought it'd be good to think about that question, just probe it a bit more deeply. How do we know what's true in the first place? Let's go back to first principles. Now, at the risk of sounding a bit like, you know, the Matrix, I do apologise uh, for, you know, bringing that Im image into your mind. Um, but, you know, that was the question, of course, of the Matrix, wasn't it? You know, can we, how do we have confidence that, you know, we're not just brains in jars, that we're not just living a kind of virtual life, that we're not, you know, our bodies are not just being controlled by computer, you know, and, and it, all of our experiences are... Uh, you know, given to us by computer. How do we know that? You know, can we trust our senses? Can we trust our brains? Um, can we trust other people? And it's interesting as well, you know, how the modern scientific method actually undermines confidence or should undermine confidence. It's interesting how you've got the new atheists, so-called, I mean, I know that that movement has kind of died a death now, but you know, people like Richard Dawkins who would say, well, I'm rational because I believe in science. But, you know, it's John Dixon, oh, sorry, not John Dixon, John Lennox, who is um, professor of, uh, emeritus professor of mathematics at Oxford University. One of the things that he, the points that he makes is, you know, he likes to say to people who believe in sort of naturalism and evolution, uh, and says to them, you know, you believe that we have just, everything about us has just evolved from nothing you know, including our brains, and they say yes, and then he says, and you trust them? You know, that how, how do we know if we've only evolved that our brains are actually working properly and telling us what we, you know, thinking really about, about things in a proper way? 
there's no way of, of knowing, is there? That's the thing that, you know, we, we need something outside of ourselves to ground the truth. We need an objective reality. We need something, or perhaps I should say someone, where we can ground it, where we can say, at the end of the day, I know this is true because I'm building my truth on this solid ground. You know, that this is truth and I know that anything that comes from here on this building on this rock will not uh, will not be false. And that is where God uh, comes in. I found this wonderful quote from uh, someone called Herman Bavink. Uh, he was a, a, a theologian, I think a Dutch Dutch Reformed theologian. It's got to be Dutch Reformed from the name, hasn't it? Um, but his um, books, Reform Dogmatics, several volumes of theology, they were very often being quoted at, uh, at theological college. You know, I think he's, um, I think he, he was a little bit obscure, sort of through the maybe the 20th century, but he's, you know, been recovered a little bit more. But let me quote you uh, a bit of what I found. This is a quote that I found from his on the internet, which was really, um, really good. He, that is God, is the truth in its absolute fullness. He, therefore, is the primary, the original truth, the source of all truth, the truth in all truth. He is the ground of the truth, of the true being, of all things, of their knowability and conceivability, the ideal and archetype of all truth, of all ethical being, of all the rules and laws, in light of which the nature and manifestation of all things should be judged, and on which they should be modelled. God is the source and origin of the knowledge of truth in all areas of life. So there we go. God is the source and origin of the knowledge of truth in all areas of life. That if there is anything which is true, it is built on, on God's existence. You know, God gives it the truth. So, you know, the truth, if you like, is more than just the truth, but the truth is built on God and on his character. You know, that God is true and everything true, you know, is built on, on him, on, on that. Um, and that's why I think Jesus says you know, later on in, uh, in the Gospels, in John's Gospel, Jesus says, anyone on the side of truth listens to me. You know, that's because, you know, if we're really searching for the truth, then we need, to, you know, we will, it will lead us to God. Because you can't search for the truth uh, and finish the journey unless you come to God. You know, that's, that's uh, I think, an implication of what, what Bavink says. Um, indeed, what the Bible says. Now, words are fundamental to that, aren't they? You know, that words are an expression of truth. That if there weren't words, there wouldn't be truth and lies. You know, things would just be. But words, you know, communication, that's where truth and falsehood comes in, isn't it? And words are fundamental in the Bible, their importance. So there are, you know, several places that we could go to talk about this. Um, but one of the things is, uh, God says in Genesis, how does he create the world? By speaking. He says it at Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now God spoke the world into being. God spoke the world into being. So words are fundamental. You know, when God speaks, things happen. You know, God's words, if you like, sort of create truth. Because um, they are truth itself. Um, let me go on to Psalm, uh, Psalm 12. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. The words of the Lord are flawless, that everything that God says is true. You know, it's like more pure than the purest gold. That's, you know, the level of which the, the psalmist kind of compares um, God's words. And let me just quote you from the New Testament here, from 
1 Peter 1.23 For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Peter says you've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. You've been born again through the word. So it's it's that God's word again is not just a it is not just a thing, but it has power. And it has power to, to make people born again. That's something which is uh, you know, I think another implication of what Peter says, that the word of God has power behind it. So I would say it's hard to overstate the importance of words to God. You know, that it's it's hard to overstate the importance of words in the Bible. So that's about words. Let's think about Satan, the liar. As we know, we've looked at this before on the podcast, lies are Satan's modus operandi. And let me quote you the famous passage uh, from Jesus, from uh, John 8, verse 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, let's just think about this question for a moment. Why is it that Satan lies? What what reason could Satan have for lying? I think the answer is that lies are Satan's way of keeping us in chains. Lies are Satan's way of keeping us in chains because Satan does not wish good for us. But he wishes that which is evil. You know, he wish, wishes to take us away from God, away from living a good life, away from living a righteous life. You know, Satan wants to keep us in chains. And he knows that the best way of doing that is actually by encouraging us to believe a lie. You think about Romans chapter 1, in fact, I think we might have mentioned this on the podcast as well, about how mankind exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And that's Romans chapter 1. And I think there's so, you know, that that's the truth, isn't it? That we exchange the truth about God for a lie. That's what we do. And that keeps us chained up. Think about it. You know, the lies during COVID, did they free us or enslave us? You know, look at the effect that they've had. Can you think of a single example of a lie which actually freed anybody? Or did those lies eventually enslave? You know, that's what lies do. They lead you down a rabbit hole. They enslave us. So one of the biggest lies in our uh, culture today, I believe, is uh, about men and women. Um, So this is what the Bible says about men and women. And I know this is a verse that we've uh, returned to many times. But I think it's, it's absolutely fundamental for... Uh, for humanity, for who we are as um, as human beings. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, I believe that the erasure of the distinctives between men and women, male and female, you know, boys and girls, I think that's one of the, if not the biggest, a most insidious lie of our age. Um, you think about it, all of this transgender ideology, has it led to uh, to freedom and release for young people? You know, this, this ability to kind of express themselves to, to be who they want to be, who they feel they are. Well, it seems to me that rather than freeing, it's actually enslaved. You know, because they can't change reality. So if a boy thinks, you know, he's a girl, then even if he has surgery, he'll be on hormone replacement therapy the rest of his life. Hormone replacement, but, you know, hormones. He'll be on medication the rest of uh, rest of his life. Uh, you know, so many people, so many young people particularly, seem to be going down this dangerous ro- road, and it's enslaving. And what's happening is they just... 
Now, if you follow the money, what's happening is that they are, you know, being, um, you know, the big pharma is selling them drugs for you know, lifelong drugs. I mean, you think about it from the perspective of big pharma, you know, getting someone transgender when they're, you know, a child, they're going to be on drugs the rest of their life. I mean, that's a that's a big win, isn't it? You know, they're going to be paying or someone's going to be paying for drugs for the rest of their life. Now, they have a massive interest in keeping that control, don't they? The big, uh, big pharma companies. And if you trace the money back, that is largely where it's going. You know, that um, these, you know, advertising and so on, it's all done by these organisations who have an interest in promoting uh, transgender because they have a they have a financial interest in young people um, being transgender. It made me think actually of uh, C.S. Lewis's um, memorable phrase in The Abolition of Man. I read The Abolition of Man over Christmas and it's only a short, very short little book. It's just a series of, I think, three lectures that C.S. Lewis gave um, and only very short uh, at that. Um, but I think very... Um, insightful as he always was and this is what he said what we call man's power over nature turns out to be a power exercised by some men over other men with nature as its instrument when it comes to transgender you can see that so much in action can't you you know that a power of some men over others with nature as its instrument you know that that, that is so so true and I think um, that's exactly what we see, that you know, this demolishing of male and female, the traditional male roles, the traditional female roles, demolishing of marriage, and now the demolishing of ma- masculinity and femininity itself, all of that is part of the, part of the, the lie. And it, it is, I, I believe, demonic, you know, that, that regardless of who may be pushing the agendas in a human perspective, I think ultimately if you look behind that, we are talking about spiritual forces, and, and I, I don't think you know. I think the Bible would have us uh, have us believe that you know that that's perfectly fine for Christians to believe because you know we do have to recognise spiritual forces of evil um, behind what's happening in the world. One of the other things I read at Christmas uh, was C.S. Lewis's novel That Hideous Strength. So um, one of the things I, I never used to know about C.S. Lewis was that he wrote. A science fiction sort of trilogy um, and uh, it was uh, Out of the Silent Planet uh, Perilandra were the first two and the final one was That Hideous Strength. I haven't read the first two so I, I need to go back and read those but you can sort of read it on its own and what what this novel does is it takes uh, the ideas that he mentioned in The Abolition of Man and puts it into a novel and I think it's absolutely fascinating and terrifying and you've definitely got to read it you know that this obviously you know he he had a a real imagination you know it it was it's a work of fiction of course but you read this and you know so many things you'll see parallels to what's happening today Um, particularly the way that you know they this nice um, group you know wanted to have power over nature and one of the things that needs to happen in order to have power over nature, is to uh, abolish sex. And when I say sex, I mean not sort of just biological sex, but, you know, intercourse, you know, um, making love, um, the sexual act. So, so this is, let me just quote you a bit from one of the characters in that hideous strength. Uh, My friend, you have already separated the fun, as you call it, from the fertility. The fun itself begins to pass away. Bah, I know that this is not what you think. But look at your English women. Six out of ten are frigid, are they not? You see, nature herself begins to throw away the anachronism. When she has quite thrown it away, then real civilization becomes possible. You would understand if you were peasants. Who would try to work with stallions and bulls? No, no, we want geldings and oxen. There will never be peace and order and discipline so long as there is sex. When man has thrown it away, then he will become finally governable.
think about that. When man has thrown it away, sex, he will become governable. That's what they, and I'm going to you know use use it in, in inverted commas. You know they want, they want us to be governable, so they need to abolish sex, in a sense. Now, obviously, we still need it for, you know, for reproduction. At the moment, uh, you think about all of these, you know, artificial wombs, and you think about, you know, all of the other uh, uh, immigration as well. In fact, all of the other ways that, you know, that that uh, we are almost encouraged not to to think about sex and not to, you know, to, to have any concern for it. Um, it's, yeah, you can see it happening. Um, but yes, they, they want us to be governable, so they need to abolish it. Now, why is sex so important? And let me uh, quote you again from that hideous strength. But she had been conceiving this world as spiritual in the negative sense, as some neutral or democratic vacuum, where differences disappeared, where sex and sense were not transcended but simply taken away. Now the suspicion dawned upon her that there might be differences and contrasts all the way up. Richer, sharper, even fiercer at every rung of the ascent. How if this invasion of her own being in marriage from which she had recoiled, often in the very teeth of instinct, were not, as she had supposed, merely a relic of animal life or patriarchal barbarism, but rather the lowest, the first, and the easiest form of some shocking contact with reality which would have to be repeated, but in ever larger and more disturbing modes on the highest levels of all. So what Lewis is, is saying here is that, you know, that we have this view in society, and even when he was writing this, I think back in the late 1940s, that you know, sex kind of is primitive, it's, it's animalistic, or it comes from, you know, marriage comes from a kind of patriarchy where, you know, we just, it's, the men just get what they want and the women are just subservient. And so sex is kind of like, and desire, and the, the typical roles of men and women, they are just relics of our animal instincts or, you know, patriarchal society. But what uh, Jane, the character uh, described here, is coming to realise is that maybe the instinct that she felt in marriage was actually um, you know, the, the lowest form of something which actually goes all the way up. In other words, it is perhaps the most fundamental thing that we as human beings encounter with sort of the divine, if you like. You know, that there is something very, very profound about sexual difference and about the sexual act itself, which expresses something fundamental about who God is and about the nature of, of things, about the nature of reality, that you are touching something transcendent. Um, I know that there's a, a lot to, to take in there, but you know the idea that sex is, is not just a, a biological act, but is actually something transcendent, that's one which I think as a society that we, we have believed in the past, and I think even today you can see that, you know, that you have people like Louise Perry or, or Mary Harrington who say, you know, that um, uh, a, a boss asking his female employees to do a sexual act on him is not the same as asking them to bring him a cup of coffee, for example. You know, we recognise that there is something special, something unique about sex and that, you know, it, it is touching something transcendent. I think we even still have that, something of that idea. Um, but that's why it's so important, and I think that's why they, you know, the powers that be, are trying to abolish it, or at least trying to subvert it. Now, I think there's um, a huge amount that, that could be said here, and I appreciate that I've been touching on things which really need more, you know, explanation, and, and, and there are things which I'd like to come back to over the, the next few months and explore further. But one of the things which, um, I mean, I just wanted to kind of put this together, you know, just, just for us today uh, to be thinking about, and uh, do let me know what you think. But I think what we can draw from this, putting it together, 
is that mankind were created in the image of the creator and that means that love is fundamental to our identity that relationships are fundamental to our identity you know as i've said before you know mankind uh, the, the 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 trinity is a community of other person centered love and likewise we were made in god's image to be a community of other person centered love male and female as we've seen from that verse in genesis are are fundamental to our identity in the image of god so there must therefore be something fundamental about our identity as men and women which you know perhaps more than anything else show the image of god in us and i believe uh, that that sex you know sexual intercourse the sexual act is the highest physical act of love you know it's it's the most love that you know a man can show a woman a woman can show a man um you know in 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 that that way uh, obviously there are other ways of loving people um you know as jesus said dying for our friends is you know you can show no more love for a friend than dying for them uh, but i think that in the the normal life you know that that the sexual act is the highest physical expression of love and in order for it to exist it requires there to be male and female it requires a male and a female and it requires there to be genuine love and both of those things are under attack at the moment are they not in some degree the first one definitely and i think love is um if you notice that fewer and fewer people are talking about it and fewer and fewer songs on the radio talk about love um you notice this if you listen to older songs you know from the that you know the way they used to be through the 20th century and and so on you know they talk a lot about love modern songs don't talk about love um it's interesting um and that's the thing you know why why does love have to be abolished because those who love are not governable now you think about a man who would take a bullet for his wife and children or you know for his loved ones you know think about a man who loved who who loved his his family and wanted to defend them and and so would be prepared to go to war because he he loved you know loved his family loved his country uh and loved his fellow citizens you know that, that there is something fundamental about love that love motivates us um you think about that that song by meatloaf you know i'd do anything for love but i won't do that um whatever that is i don't know but you know the uh, love make motivates us you know and it makes us ungovernable it makes us uncontrollable perhaps i should say that you know there are forces in this world who want to control us who want to destroy the family who want to to make us just units of consumption and you know make us into to to just you know atomized individuals and that means that we are not we are controllable you know we make their money because we just follow their script uh, for our lives whereas love breaks in and love means that we will stand up for things and and we are not you know we will not be uh, governed by tyranny if we really love that's why they they need to abolish it so how do we move forward let me just briefly um share a couple of thoughts on this I think the first thing is that we need another sexual revolution. Um but when I say revolution I mean in the sense of putting things the right way up. Because at the moment since the sexual revolution of the 1960s things have been the wrong way up. And it's it's well I mean that was the that got the ball rolling but really it's it's just turned the world upside down. And we need to turn the world the right way up again. And I think that's particularly true with men and women. I think men and women a uh, desperately need to find a way to relate again and this is um something which i've been really struck by over these last few weeks it seems like so many of the things which i've i've read or watched have dealt in this you know that this idea that men and women are are unable to relate anymore and so we need to find way a way back um and um uh, Nancy Pearce in particular I've been reading Nancy Pierce's book The Toxic War on Masculinity and this is um 
uh, subtitled How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Um, but I think it's a really excellent book. Um, I've really been enjoying it so far. One of the things about it which is notable is that she is very much a Christian. You know, she's basing everything she says on the Bible. And that's kind of linked to the second thing that I said, it, which is I think we need another enlightenment. We need to, in a sense, undo the enlightenment. You know, if you think about Immanuel Kant, that you know, mankind has come, come of age and we can overthrow the shackles of our self-imposed you know, captivity. We need, to, we need to learn to think for ourselves. And um, ironic, again, that talking about throwing off our chains, that it's led, I think, to us becoming enslaved in other ways. When we throw off the shackles of the truth, we, in, we enslave ourselves. Um, so I think that's what we need to do. We need to reconnect with the one who is the truth in all of this. Um, and, and that's, yeah, that's what I've said. That, you know, the sexual revolution, I think, was, I think that was the moment when, you know, that everything, that the enlightenment, you know, kind of took the dark turn. Uh, and you know all of the thing, the ideas that are, were coming out in the Enlightenment actually came, stepped into practical um, their outworking. You know when we threw off uh, God, threw off His ways of doing things, and said, "No, I'm going to do things myself." And uh, we need to 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 reverse direction, and we need to doesn't mean going back to the 1950s, but it means we need to move forward in the right direction. You know sometimes if you've gone down a wrong path, progress means going back to some degree. And I think that's that's kind of what we need to do. And it's interesting that we've got people like Louise Perry, like Mary Harrington and others who have been making these kind of points. Um, but I think we need a forward looking, you know, we need to be looking forward. And especially we need to be looking to the one who gave us humanity in the first place, looking to God. So as we finish, I'd just like to uh, end with a, a reading by, from the Bible. This time uh, I'm going to read... Uh, Psalm 11. Here we go, Psalm 11. Let me get that up. I oh, can get it all on the screen. There we go. I read this this morning actually, and I know I've had it on the podcast before, but I thought that this was really appropriate for today and you know for everything that we've been talking about. So, so we'll finish with this. And again, I won't really you know say much about it. I'll just just pretty much read it out. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me? Flee like a bird to your mountain. For, look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked those who love violence he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulphur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. And I, I love that, that's, you know, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? I mean, it's, it's everything I've been talking about, isn't it? You know, when it seems like every, even the, the very basics you know, the foundations of male and female and marriage and so on. When all of that is being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, what we can do is seek the Lord, trust him, and just seek to do, practice righteousness ourselves, and know that God is, you know, watches over the world. He is in in control still. And he is the one who will reward uh, the wicked for what they are doing and reward the righteous. Uh, and he watches over the way of the righteous and he loves justice and that's what we need to commit ourselves to so let's uh, let's finish now with a prayer and ask for god's help uh, over these uh, these this coming week uh, just to put these things into practice and think through them as you know as we go through our days and so heavenly father we um recognize that we've been thinking about some deep things today we recognize that we've been uh, as we're thinking about truth and as we're thinking about uh, male and female and how you know lies are taking over we pray that you would help us to live out the truth in our own lives um, in every way we pray that particularly thinking about what it means to be male and female you would help us there and we pray that you would help us to uh, to be able to live out the truth in every way knowing that you are the, the source of all truth and we pray that you'd help us to be committed to the truth 
committed to you and committed to your ways of righteousness. We ask these things and pray for your help and your blessing in this coming week. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining me, everyone. I hope that uh, my voice hasn't been too annoying for you, and I hope that the fan hasn't been too annoying for you. Hopefully that will be better uh, next week, and hopefully I'll be better next week as well. Um, so, yeah, take care, God bless, and I'll see you again soon.